So we're talking a little bit about um, deconstruction, which is a way of questioning uh, what we think and believe about certain things and how to rethink about them. And uh, so we're going to finish this topic next Wednesday night. I didn't want it to be too long of a topic, but I think tonight uh, it'll be helpful for us to uh, review for a second. And then I have a couple of things I want to show you. I then have a closing video at the very end that's about 10 minutes long and then two quotes. So that's kind of the outline that I want to give to you for tonight. So let's begin, uh, first of all, with this kind of summary slide. So my idea uh, presented to you is that faith is always going through various cycles of deconstruction and reconstruction. And I am using this as kind of the key verse out of First Peter uh, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So when we think about what we learn and how we relearn, uh, it's it's interesting concept here. The picture is that of being refined, and uh, each time we're refined in the process, um, the quality of our faith is of greater worth than gold, Peter is saying. Now, what he's referring to here is these things that have come. He's talking in the previous uh, verse about various types of trials that people go through. But when people um, have issues with faith and believing and trying to pursue certainty, uh, they will run into various times where uh, they have to rethink. And so this is what we're talking about, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony, a cycle that we go through. Along with a disclaimer, deconstruction is not something we choose for ourselves. It is something that's kind of thrust upon us, and it happens to us. And then we begin to uh, look honestly at some of the assumptions that we have, either that we have inherited or some things maybe we have assumed about uh, the way faith and uh, issues of faith uh, work. So what, what I wanted to do is talk a little bit about how even other things go through deconstruction and reconstruction. So when we think about all of the uh, wildfires that uh, have taken place across the country, whether in Colorado or California, those type of things, um, it's interesting that that process, while destructive, does kind of lay a groundwork for the forest to continue to repopulate itself. So I ran across this illustration where uh, sometimes, obviously, uh, forest rangers have to go in and they have to kind of remove some of the dead trees, get them out of the way so that the other trees can continue to flourish. And then there's a particular type of tree, a pine tree that produces a strong resin that kind of holds its cones together that at times needs to open up so that that particular type of tree can continue uh, to multiply. And that happens when sometimes a, a forest fire occurs, it opens up these uh, cones and then reseeds the ground. So 
uh, that's just kind of a physical illustration that uh, sometimes the fire is not the end, even though we try to put it out because it can be destructive for um, uh, cities and and homes and that type of thing. But sometimes the fire is the beginning of something new that continues uh, for it to con uh, populate um, the forest. So uh, that's kind of a simple illustration that even though um, just like um, metals, it goes through refinement. Even here, uh, we find that sometimes things as they are destroyed actually open up the way for something else. So uh, as we go through this cycle, I want you to think about this from simplicity, complexity, uh, to perplexity and harmony in, in a different illustration. So um, it's kind of strange how I come up with some of these analogies, and some of them make sense, and maybe some of them aren't as good as others. But I want you to think about this process we go through uh, in relationship to how we ride in a car, okay? So we take our first trip in a car when our parents bring us home from the hospital and put us into a car seat in the back seat. And it's a very simplistic ride because uh, that baby all the way through toddlerhood uh, is unable really to see outside. They can't see the road ahead. They can't see really what's behind them. All they see is right in front of them. And many times faith is that way. Sometimes people need a simplistic type of faith and they just kind of look at what's right in front of them. But then think a little bit about as we grow up and then we get our, um, our, our per learner's permit or even before that, uh, we're no longer needing a car seat or a booster seat. Now, all of a sudden, once you step up into the passenger seat in the front, the car becomes more complex. And what I mean by that is now you see all the gauges. You're able to see um, a little bit of what's in front of you, perhaps, or what's out the side window. But as you look at the steering wheel and the brake, and as you look at the gas pedal, you look at the heater, um, the rear view mirror, all these type of things. Um, are making the car more complex than when you were sitting in the back seat and all you knew it was what was right in front of you. Then all of a sudden you have the opportunity to get your driver's license and you sit behind the driver's wheel for the first time with your learner's permit. And all of a sudden you, now you need to uh, be able to navigate that vehicle. And so you turn it on. Uh, you have to check everything around you, whether you have a backup camera or not. Uh, you pull out, uh, you get on the road. Now you're looking for other things. You're looking for pedestrians. You're looking for other cars. You're looking for potholes. You're looking for construction. Everything gets to be even more complex. You master those skills the longer you do it, but even then there's things that pop up. So Esty mentioned how last night uh, we went over to her work's uh, Christmas party over in Bay Village. And when we were driving down the shoreway, uh, we come to Dead Man's Curve and there is an there was an accident that had just happened. It was a fender bender, but it it uh, the people kind of pulled off to the road a little bit. It must have just happened 
you know, but uh, a minute before we got there and there was debris on the ground and you didn't see that debris on the ground until you were right there and you couldn't avoid it. So I go through that lane and I told Esty last night, I said, boy, I, I hope that didn't, you know, damage my tires and stuff like that. So we drove out there, enjoyed the party, drove all the way home. So I get into the car this morning, I turn on the uh, ignition and the tire gauge comes on that one of the tires or more than maybe one of the tires is low on air. Now I look out and yeah, the driver's side uh, has uh, has low air pressure, but it wasn't much. I drive over to the funeral home. I work for a couple of hours. I come back and by the time I get back home, it's the tire pressure is getting lower and it's very obvious that I'm losing air. So I get a flashlight and I'm trying to feel around and sure enough, there was some type of a metal object that was in the tire. So I run it up to this place that's across from McKinley, um, small little auto repair place. And he was able to uh, pull that out and, and plug it. And now I'm back on my way. In other words, sometimes you see things and you're able to avoid them. Sometimes you're not. And that's the perplexity sometimes of driving. You're driving along and all of a sudden you're getting um, maybe an oil pressure uh, light or maybe you're getting some other type of warning light, an engine light. And then all of a sudden that world becomes much more complex. It begins to simplify, though, that as you get to your destination um, and you turn that car off, all the perplexities, all the potholes, all of the detours, um, all the construction, whatever it may be, is beside the point. You pull in and you're kind of at peace that you finally arrived at your destination. And that's kind of the process that we go through in faith as well. Simplistic, uh, more complex, but then the perplexing part, decisions that need to be made, reactions that need to be made, that type of thing. And then yet having faith is the awareness that whether we can put all the mysteries together uh, of our faith, there's a harmony in knowing that we're held by God in his hands and we will arrive safely home whenever that may be. So I don't know if that illustration helps you or not a little bit, but it's kind of a metaphor to think about how what happens in a car is sometimes what happens in our life in regard to our faith. Does that help at all? Okay. All right. So what we want to do tonight is continue to talk a little bit about the dynamics of the journey of faith. So what deconstruction is, is the process of learning to examine what we believe and maybe some of the glasses that we wear and how we look through those glasses. Now, this isn't just true within Christianity. It's true in any religion, any philosophy, any worldview for that matter. The more you learn, the more it begins to change your perspective and how you see things. So our process of examining our ideas, traditions, uh, beliefs, those type of things 
goes through construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction all the time. And we shouldn't be afraid of this at all. It's just normal. It's a part of getting older. It's a part of getting wiser. So do you have any questions on any of that so far? Okay. So what I wanted to do is show you, and I'm not going to have you turn to all these passages of Scripture, but I do want to illustrate that the assumption of construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction is inherent within many of the different metaphors that are used in the scripture. And so I picked two of them. I didn't want to try to go through all the Old Testament, so I stuck to the New Testament. And you have some that are used by Jesus, and you have some that are used by Paul. So I'm kind of narrowing the focus a little bit. So let's talk through some of these passages of scripture and think a little bit about how uh, Jesus and Paul use this idea of kind of reconstruction, reformation uh, in some of their teachings. So let's look at Jesus first. So some of these stories you're real familiar with, some of them you might not be familiar with. So in Luke chapter 15, there's three parables um, and the longest one is the parable of the prodigal son. And you know the story of two boys, one that is considered the prodigal, asks for his inheritance, uh, and he takes his father's money, and he basically hits the nightlife and, and blows all of his money. And now he he's out of work, and he's out of food. And he says, now what am I going to do? Now he has to kind of rethink some things. And it's fascinating in that parable that he says initially, well, maybe I can go back to my father's house and I can be one of his hired hands. Okay, so if the picture of the father is kind of like a picture of God, um, there's kind of an uncertainty as to how the father's going to react to the rebellion of this younger son. He gets within eyesight of home and his father comes out and he starts a spiel that uh, maybe I'm sorry, father. I, I, and maybe I can be hired on as one of your hands. And then all of a sudden he has to kind of restructure what he thinks about his dad, because he thinks he's going to be chastised. And his dad says, uh, put on this robe. Let's kill the fatted uh, livestock. Let's throw a pot party. And all of this is kind of a reformation of understanding that his dad really does love him beyond what he can imagine. The elder son, though, is not as receptive to the younger son and he pouts and he says to his dad well i've been faithful to you the entire time and you never threw me a party and so the contrast though is at the beginning of these three parables uh the pharisees were complaining that jesus would eat dinner with all of these sinners okay that uh, these Pharisees felt that if he had a strong faith, he would shun them, he would stay away from them, he would condemn them, and he doesn't. And so the parable is one of teaching 
that you need to reform your faith, Pharisees. You need to kind of go through deconstruction of what you think and reconstruct this image because in the parables, the joy that's found in the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son is that once it is found, there's great enthusiasm. And a couple of times in chapter 15, the angels are rejoicing that this individual is has been found. So the metaphor here is kind of finding our way back to God, or in the metaphor, the Father's house, where we are accepted, and we are forgiven, and we are celebrated. Okay, so then a second metaphor. In Jesus' teaching, again, he's talking about uh, some of the things that uh, some of the religious people were believing. And uh, he then says in Luke chapter 5, and I am going to read this one, uh, Luke chapter 5, there is this uh, notation here about new wine. So when you get to chapter 5, you can um, look at verse, what's verse 33. Um, it says here, they said to him, this is the uh, Pharisees, and, and if you look at the paragraph prior to this, it's the same complaint that's in Luke chapter 15. Um, there's a complaint about Jesus eating with sinners. Anyways, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. They don't go through the religious tradition of fasting. Jesus responds, can you make, uh, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is still with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. So he's referring to himself that when he goes away, then they're going to mourn and they are going to fast. But while they, while Jesus is with them, it's a time of great celebration. And then here's the parable, verse 36. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Then in verse 37 is the one I've listed here. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. We get used to the old. We get used to um, what what we feel comfortable with. But when new wine is poured into an old wine skin, there's an expansion, and there is the the breaking of the seams. In other words, there's going to be new forms to new movements, and you have to be open to those because God's not done in the process of His work. Then I think you're familiar with the water to wine story where uh, the bride and groom run out of wine and Mary says to Jesus, um, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, okay, go fill these stone water jars. But what's interesting in the text 
before he changes the water to wine is the notation that these are ceremonial uh, religious uh, jars that were used for ceremonial washing. And he takes that, which is an old tradition, doesn't really have anything to do with cleanliness in terms of washing your hands. It's all about symbolism. It's all about the ceremony. And he takes those very uh, jars and that's where he changes the water into wine. It's something new that's beginning with him. Uh, there is the passage in John 15 uh, where it talks about one of the I am statements of Jesus. I am the vine and you are the branches. But it's interesting that the farmer or the vine dresser um, recognizes that for the vine to produce more fruit or better fruit, it needs to be pruned. In other words, there's process that it goes through that makes it um, um, in a position to be able to produce better fruit. I didn't put down a reference here, but if you look at a lot of the miracles of Jesus in all four of the Gospels, you the blind see, the lame walk, um, the unclean are made clean. It's kind of a new beginning. And all of this is kind of metaphorical in the sense that uh, there are things that Jesus is always doing, that God is always doing, that that puts things into a new frame and is continuing to shape us in the way we think about God and his work in the world. The last one under uh, this list uh, is the famous passage of Jesus talking with Nicodemus. Um, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night because uh, he doesn't probably want to be seen um, contemplating the teachings of Jesus in light of his uh, colleagues who might uh, be offended by that or ridicule him for that. So he comes to Jesus at night and he asks the question about obtaining eternal life. Or within a Jewish frame of mind, it is the idea of what must I do to obtain the life of the ages to come? That is the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives him a very unusual answer. You must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, well, who can enter uh, uh, a mother's womb a second time? And he says, well, you must be born of the water and the spirit. And there's an allusion there to the coming of the Holy Spirit, producing new life within the individual. And he's going to have to rethink how he is perceiving his faith. And um, that then leads into John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have the life of the ages to come, eternal life. So um, all of these, I think, are just illustrations that Jesus often used kind of this metaphor of, okay, the religious people of his day had kind of constructed a religious model that they needed to kind of rethink in light of the coming of Jesus. And then that kind of reforms or reconstructs um, how how to look at being a disciple of Christ and a follower of God. Do those illustrations help? Do you have any questions on the left side of the uh, slide here? 
Okay, so on the right side, uh, the Apostle Paul picks up and talks a lot about uh, this whole process as well. Um, and I, there are different epistles that are uh, talking about some of these different ways of uh, deconstructing and reconstructing. The first one is in Ephesians 5, where uh, Paul is actually quoting uh, previous scripture. So why don't you go over to Ephesians 5 real quick. Ephesians chapter 5. Incidentally, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the, the deepest um, writings of Paul, aside from the book of Romans. The book of Ephesians has all kinds of things in it that uh, is talking about some of the things that are most um most helpful in understanding who we are in Christ. So uh, in chapter five, it begins with talking about forgiving others as Christ is, as God is forgiving us. And then you come down and there's this image of light and darkness. Uh, verse eight says, for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Well, how do I do that? Well, when, when you go down to verse 13, he says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated by a light. Um, and then he says here, this is what is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So he says, it's almost as if we're asleep and all of a sudden we wake up and the light shows us it's a brand new day. And um, of course he talks about this in relationship to the new life that is found in the resurrection from the dead. A very similar passage is in chapter one of Ephesians where the apostle Paul gives this really, really lengthy prayer. Uh, all of chapter one, is a prayer. And when you get to verse 18 in Ephesians 1, one of the things that he is praying for is this, I pray that the eyes of your heart, okay, so that doesn't make physical sense. My heart doesn't have physical eyes. It's a metaphor. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in other words, that you may be able to see in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The same, the, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand. But the metaphor is here, I pray that your eyes, which are shut, will be opened up so that you can see what you have never seen before, okay? So some of the other ones he uses is the idea of a veil that is being taken away in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's a lengthy passage. In other words, a new heart, a new mind is sort of like a veil that is lifted or kind of like the the blinds on a window, if you will, that are raised so that you can see 
what you did not previously see. Another way he puts it in Galatians is taking off old garments and putting on new garments. And then he talks a little bit about being recreated as a new creation in Christ. If any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's almost as if there's a whole new uh, start. And then finally, uh, the resurrection. Um, I'm going to turn to this one. You're in Ephesians. You just need to go over uh, two books, uh, past Philippians to Colossians. And in verse 1 through 4, this is another powerful image here. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this idea of being raised with Christ as if we were dead, we couldn't see, we couldn't hear, we couldn't feel, and now we have been raised with him and there's a whole new world ahead of us. So all of these metaphors that are being used, and this is just a sampling, is all this process of continued formation and, and destruction or um, deconstruction and reformation. So these things are all talking about something that I think all of us at times don't feel comfortable with because we don't know what's ahead. So it's like we're in the back seat of the car. We can't see where uh, the driver is taking us. But once we uh, begin to reform some things, it's like we're sitting in the front seat of the car and we're beginning to look around and we begin to see things that we could never see before. And uh, that's all a part of the faith formation. That's all a part of the um, purging of things that we assume or maybe some things we believe that need to be tweaked. Thoughts there? Any questions? Okay. So deconstruction, while it sounds like a scary word, is something that actually deepens our faith. So we just have to take that as normal. I believe that you and I, uh, as we grow older, uh, we change. We change in the way we see things because of experiences, because of wisdom, different things like that. And we don't consider that abnormal. That's just a, a part of growth. Well, the same thing is true in the faith arena. Uh, deconstruction is something that's normal. No one hands you a perfect faith. There's no such thing as a perfect faith system, but you have been handed one, whether it's growing up in a church or whether it is something that you come to a little bit later in your life, but somebody's handing you that initial model. And then you begin to tweak that. And that's a normal process. That's just not, there's nothing unusual about that at all. So if we're growing in faith, as I put here on the slide, at some point, we begin to see that some of the ways that we look at the world and the way we look at ourselves doesn't match our experience. So sometimes we go 
through life and we've been sheltered quite a bit. But then all of a sudden, uh, whether it's going off to college or getting your first job, you begin to see how the world really works a little bit that maybe you did not know before. And your eyes are opened up and that can be good or that can be kind of scary. And um, the same thing is true with faith. When we go through, excuse me, experiences, we begin to say, uh, what I have been told, it might have been a bit simplistic and it it didn't have the complexity or the perplexity that is needed to have a well-rounded uh, perspective or belief. So when we see things no longer working, um, then we're faced with one of two options, really. And a lot of people don't want to engage that process. They either try to ignore it, or maybe they turn around and go back to that which is safe and just deny that uh, these things are true. Or you can uh, you can forge ahead and ask hard questions, and you can try to climb over some of those obstacles that are in the way and try to and try to come to terms with certain things. And there will be times when you will then go. Ah, boy, I'm glad I did this because it helps me now to better understand certain things. There will be other times where it's going to be the perplexity thing. We don't have solid answers. Um, even when I start the car and I put it in drive, and even though I know how to use the steering wheel and the brake, the car is perplexing in the sense there are things going on in the engine I don't fully understand. I don't understand how the uh, the pistons work with, uh, you know, the coolant, with the uh, carburetor. With, are you following what I'm saying? I, I'm okay with that. I continue to use the car. I handle the perplexities that I'm able to handle. I'm avoiding that pothole. I'm avoiding, um, you know, uh, that construction, whatever it may be. But there are elements I will never understand, but other people will. So you take the car to the mechanic. He understands better the carburetor and the spark plugs and everything than I do. And that's why I go to him is because he or she uh, has the knowledge that I don't. Does that make sense? I hope a lot of these metaphors are helping you uh, rather than confusing you. But any thoughts? Okay, so accept it as normal, and then um, then you have to believe that there is a better faith that is out there as well as you go through it. Um, sometimes what happens, the stricter uh, sectarian forms of religion, I'm not just talking about Christianity, this can be any religion, um, that they um, they don't want a better form of their faith. And so a lot of times they want to be stuck right where they are because that gives comfort uh, and control. Um, but out of deconstruction uh, comes that which is wise, not clever. I'm not talking about gimmicky. Um, it's deeper. And by that, I don't mean it's ethereal. I mean, you know, in the sense of, uh, okay, um, 
and it can be engaged, but you don't necessarily uh, find that you are ideological. You're always open that there are things that need to be tweaked. Number three, take comfort. Everybody goes through it, whether they admit to it or not. Everybody goes through deconstruction and reconstruction at various points in their life. And, um, you know, we should openly acknowledge that because that'll give other people hope that they're not going through something unusual. But I think number four, and this is the most important one, don't give up on Jesus. Even when you can't understand things, Jesus is the heart of our faith. And uh, even when things go off the rails at times with what might happen within Christianity or more specifically to a church or whatever it may be, um, don't equate that with Jesus. Jesus is um, is found in the Gospels, and as we've been looking on Sunday morning, uh, his personality is characterized by the Beatitudes, I think, and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so you will find a term that there are always people that are revenants of faith, or another word for that is they are uh, remnants, remnants of people that continue to move forward to a better faith. And so both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the idea is regardless of what other people choose to do, God always has some people that are moving forward and they are called a remnant often. So like in Isaiah, Micah, and the book of Joel, and that's just three examples from the Old Testament, you have this idea that there's this remnant of people that have kept the faith because they keep on uh, moving forward. So I'm just going to turn to one, the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, you have, um, as I mentioned on Sunday, the book of Isaiah really has three authors. And that's why in, in some circles, you'll see uh, first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah, even though it's one book. But this section is in first Isaiah. And so this is probably the prophet Isaiah himself's writings, which most scholars believe that chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah. And if you come down to um, verse 20 in Isaiah 10, Isaiah already uh, is anticipating some hardship coming upon his people, and yet he does not give up the faith. Look at verse 20. He says, in that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people may be like the sand of the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. In other words, you're not going to stop the invasion that's coming. But there will be a remnant, if you hold on to faith, that will continue to be held in the hands of God. 
Though you have a lot of that type of imagery in the prophets. Then in Acts chapter 15, I'll just summarize this. It's a long chapter. When Gentiles are beginning to come to faith, the Jews who were the first followers of Jesus um, didn't know what to do with these pagans. Um, and so there's a controversy that occurs in the early church. And Acts chapter 15 is called um, uh, the Jerusalem Council. So there's a a meeting that is held in Jerusalem, and uh, Paul gives testimony that these Gentiles are coming to faith, and um, and the leaders there recognize that God is at work in this, and what are they going to do with it? Well, there is the way they kind of resolve this is okay. Don't stop the work of God. God's still going to do a work with His. Jewish people, his chosen people, but now he's opened up a new way to allow Gentiles to be a part of that. And then the only negative thing that's said is, okay, don't do the things as they as these Gentiles come into the faith. Don't do things that are going to be offensive to the Jewish people. Don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, a little bit of um, guardrails that are put up there. But then Paul is sent out to continue to do his work among the Gentiles, and um, the Jerusalem Council occurs after what is called his first missionary journey. He'll go back out, Book of Acts records two more missionary journeys where he goes out, and he begins to make contact and, and bring people into uh, assemblies where they can hear the good news and that type of thing. So God is always working, but um, there are changes at times in the program, and he begins to work in different ways and at different times. So on this screen, you're going to see um, there is listed a couple of other historical illustrations. So I think we're all familiar with the Reformation, right? Okay, so Martin Luther tax a 95 thesis document to the Wittenberg door, and it's his complaints about what the Catholic Church has done wrong. It sparks a movement of reform. The reform of the faith is such that um, we're going to do away with this uh, money grab of selling indulgences um, and that type of thing. And so the Great Reformation kind of is a new start for Christianity, but they never reconcile. These reformers never actually reconcile with um, the, the uh, Pope and the Catholic Church. And so now Christianity is kind of running on two rails, if you will, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And of course, as you know, under the Protestant history, they continue to splinter apart and there's all kinds of different denominations that come out of that new work. Well, then God begins to do something interesting in what is called the Great Awakening. So um, early in the history of our country, there were some preachers uh, like George Whitfield. Um, uh, you have Jonathan Edwards that kind of sparked a renewed interest in faith and 
not all of that was good. Um, this great awakening also kind of used scare tactics to reignite um, uh, an interest in Christianity. So like uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, spoke his most famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he talks about how God is holding everyone over the fires of hell by his thin thread and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so it becomes very puritanical almost, uh, very legalistic and and that type of thing. Uh, a second great awakening occurs with, with the likes of George Whitfield, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and some others. And uh, there's a, a spark of interest. Uh, now, then we hit the modern era. Um, so we're talking about a pre-modern era. Technology develops, science develops, all these type of things. And so faith um, now begins to have to live in light of the discoveries of Charles Darwin and different things like that. And what do we do with that? Well, it's, it is believed right now, if there was a great reformation and a great awakening, that we're currently in the middle of what some uh, scholars are calling the Great Deconstruction. And the Great Deconstruction is a rethinking of faith. So here's where I want to show you a video. And this is a summation of a book that I got last Christmas, actually, by uh, Bradley Jerzak. Uh, he's a Canadian scholar, uh, and uh, the book uh, is called um, Out of the Embers. And Brad Jerzak does a good job of showing historically how faith is kind of being reshaped. But I think he does even a better job in summarizing what's going on in this video. So do you have any questions? This is about a 10 minute video, but do you have any questions or comments before we watch it? Okay, away we go. I'm gonna minimize this so you see the whole thing here. When I refer to the great deconstruction, I guess I'm using a very big umbrella term to talk about a phenomenon that's happening right now where we're having a, an unusually large wave of faith shifting um, that includes, for some people, leaving the institutional church, for others, uh, no longer identifying as Christian, but still following Jesus, and then for others, uh, complete renunciation even of Jesus. And then um, that can happen on an individual level or a social level. And what I'm seeing is that it can be either very liberating or very traumatic. So there's a real range of experiences happening right now, but it's so massive that this term deconstruction has become a, a trendy word, but I think to describe a, a, a significant faith and culture shift in, 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 our, in this era. And I call it the great deconstruction, sort of to reflect on how, you know, we've been through this before, in different ways with what we called the great reformation or the great awakening. In other words, it's an identifier for a phenomena during an era. And this one's massive and it involves, um, it involves a, 
a lot of negative and positive responses too, I think, you know, so for some it's hand wringing pastors trying to get people back through their doors and it's just not going to happen. And others, it's sort of like um, very positive, but even toxic positivity around it. That's not careful enough, I think, with people's journeys and with their hearts. And so I wanted to wade into the great deconstruction to say, you know, if this isn't the end game, um, where is it taking us? This is not a destination. It's a birth canal. And so uh, we might want to have some guidance along the way from people who've been through it before and especially addressing it through the lens of, of empathy. What if the thing we're deconstructing was fragile? What if there were cracks in the foundation? And what if the thing we're deconstructing were actually false constructs or idols of God that were hindering us from a true knowledge of God? And so um, I think that a reconstruction that would be healthy it would involve anchoring ourselves in something sturdy. <laughs> and so... Um, one of those things would would be that well i'm not going to just reconstruct based on on the sinking sands of the shifting culture i i will pursue uh, god as i understand god with a belief that there's something real out there who responds to that pursuit in other words i don't want to just make up a new false god i don't want to just abandon the real god but if there's a if there's a, a, a true God out there um, and I'm in pursuit of that God, uh, how will I do that in a healthy way? Well, one thing is I'll do it in community with people who appear to be bearing good fruit. If their lives are chaos, I can't, I can't count on them as guides. But if I'm in the company of loving, caring, fruit-bearing mentors and comrades, then I'm going to I, I I'm I'm going to probably become like them, but I also think that inside of those relationships, oh, I will actually meet who God really is. So I've conceived it's still a conception. It just seems like a healthier one that that if there's a God, that God is love, and my own sense is that uh, to see the nature of that God who is love, I ought to anchor myself in the person of Jesus because he demonstrated uh, a world-changing kind of life that reflects the kind of God that I could trust. Um, if that's out there, I want to know him, and I want to be in the company of those who know him and can carry me when I can't carry myself. So th those are a few things, you know, the God who is love, uh, the Jesus who shows us God, and a community where I'm not in isolation and alienation, but that is obviously bearing good fruit instead of, spiritual abuse and the many things people flee from in toxic Christian environments. you got folks these days who are saying you shouldn't even have guides, just follow your own heart. And I'm watching some of those people just throw grenades into their family life. And they think following their heart means being unfaithful to their spouse or abandoning their children. Like, well, that's no, we do need guides, but then they better be seasoned and demonstrate a track record. So the examples I use uh, might surprise the modern deconstructionists because I start with Moses melting down the golden calf. 
he's identified a false god that they are enslaved to, uh, just even in their hedonism, and calling that god, and I think we do that all the time today, um, what are the golden calves that have set themselves up in place of the true knowledge of God, and how have these even been erected within the Christian faith? And they need to be melted down and, and uh, displaced by by the, the true God. Um, later, though, also early church, they 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 were very much into this idea of negative theology. That is, what can we say about God in terms of who He is not? God, and so they would say that that God is not just a being among beings. God is beyond being. And what they're doing is they're undermining their own certainty. Because their certainty about God is another way to make an idol. And that's a, been a, you know, Pedens calls this the sin of certitude. And so the early church uh, effectively assaulted that, especially in the fourth century. And um, and then later, uh, I've got some beloved frenemies. And that is people who were opposed to Christian faith, but who do us a huge favor in terms of identifying the toxic elements. So Frederick Nietzsche and... Uh, before him, Voltaire, uh, they're seen as enemies of faith, but I often think, no, they're they're enemies of something ugly and fragile in Christianity that needs to go. But they're also pretty cynical. So I looked at some some uh, people like them who are committed to following Christ. So that would include Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, and Simon Weil, and all of them were just as hard on on, on churchianity as Voltaire and Nietzsche, but they were absolutely committed to the person of Jesus Christ and following him wherever he goes. And they really set to challenging our constructs that have been unhelpful. And they, they really strip down Christendom, this idea that we can be a Christian culture or a Christian nation. And, and they observe how um, the kind of herds that follow, the, you know, uh, are, are suggestible uh, to, I guess, pardon me for saying it, but to the nut jobs out there <laughs> who want to lead us over the cliff, they're 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 what they're mindful of that, and they're like, no, we we need to always come back to the person of Jesus Christ. And so, where I've seen people do that, I'm seeing better health, and I'm seeing the good fruit of uh, not just a trendy deconstruction, but real transformation and healing in their lives when they realize and frame their deconstruction around, um, you know, removing the obstacles to knowing God instead of just removing God as such. Okay. So any thoughts, uh, comments that you have, uh, questions that you might have off that video? Okay, so what I want to do is I want to close um, our study tonight with two quotes. Um, this uh, is Bishop Callistus Ware. Um, I, he he passed away um, a little while ago, but I thought this uh, quote following up uh, Jerzak's uh, video makes a lot of sense. He says, true faith is a constant dialogue with doubt, for God is incomparably greater than all our preconceptions about him. Our mental concepts are idols that need to be shattered. 
So as to be fully alive, our faith needs to continually die. Now, now that's a fascinating concept, isn't it? That we continue to find new life by allowing the golden calves to die. That's uh, built into all of our faith structures. And then um, last one comes from uh, Brian Zond. So this is an idea that comes out of this book that he wrote, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. He says, the crisis of faith in late modernity is real. It's not just a fashion. It's not just something that was conjured up. It's not a fad. It's real. And being angry with people for losing their faith in our secular age is a little bit like being mad at medievals for dying of the plague. I don't think anybody wakes up one morning and says, you know, just for the fun of it, I think I'll have a crisis of faith. So what all these individuals are saying is we live in a unique time. Uh, we live at the crossroads of a faith tradition, good and bad. We live in a modern, postmodern society that is not often friendly to faith. And we live in some of the most uh, dramatic technological advancements that um, history has ever seen. And all of these things put pressure on our faith. And so we can either kind of crawl into a cave and just try to live out um, in, in seclusion the faith that we've already kind of stamped with our approval, or we can engage with it. And as we engage with it, um, it will indeed at times challenge us, but at other times uh, it will be enlightening and it will take our faith forward. Okay. Does that make sense? Anybody have any thoughts, any closing questions for our study for tonight? All righty. Well, then we will call it a night, and uh, I hope that you have a good rest of the week, okay? Good night, everybody. <laughs>